to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. And the last time, the message was titled, The Early Days, right? Some people have been Christians for a while. Maybe they read some of the Bible, maybe not all of it. And we talked about two people in particular, Anna and Simeon, who are older folks. And it's amazing how God was orchestrating the Messiah to come. And so many things were happening. But he, Luke, through the, the Holy Spirit, through Luke, focuses on these two older people who God honors with sacred in sacred scripture. So it's a really neat thing to look at. And I kind of had a sub theme of how God deals with individuals, how nobody is insignificant. Uh, So it was really a lot of fun going through the lives of Simeon and Anna. And this morning, the message is titled clearing a rough path, clearing a rough path. And now we're going to kind of look at the person of John the Baptist. That's an interesting thing, too. People have questions. John the Baptist, you know, how come there's no baptism of repentance today? You know, how come there's a lot of questions that people have. So we're going to talk about some theology, right? Why did he come? What was the purpose of it? What was he trying to do? And as we go through it, we're going to look at this in three parts, really concerning the person of John the Baptist and his ministry. So his last name wasn't the Baptist. You know, it's something that happens over a few thousand years. We get used to kind of, and that was his ministry. Isn't that neat, right? This whole ministry was to serve God. Um, I don't know that he started the Baptist denomination. I don't think that's a fact, but but it's kind of neat to look at, right? So we're going to talk about why these names are ascribed to him and what this whole thing about baptism was about. So we're going to jump in, Luke 3, starting with verse 1. As Luke often does, he gives a lot of detail. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, so we have a new Caesar since what we read earlier that Luke was telling us about, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch, or the ruler of a a quarter, of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, the word of the Lord, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, now this goes back to the Old Testament, where John's ministry was prophesied before he was even born. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low and the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So one is John the Baptist's ministry. Luke, again, is continuing to share incredible detail. He's very detail-oriented. And for 2,000 years, Luke is one of those Gospels that proves the existence of God and Christ because 
not that we have to prove it. We know that, you know, I've had this discussion with so many people, but um, you can go back into Roman history and, and Jewish history and find out that these things were true. Everything lines up perfect. The emperor Tiberius Caesar, he was known sadly for his cruelty and his severity. Uh, Pontius Pilate, who for many years people thought, oh, that's just the Bible fable. It didn't exist until they found engravings and, um, you know, they found uh, archaeological finds. I love archaeology because it always proves the Bible is true. Uh, And we do know Pontius Pilate exists. I actually went into some secular books of, you know, Israel and ancient Israel and secular historians say, yep, Pontius Pilate, he was a governor. Now, Pontius Pilate took over from a line of Roman sort of procurators or governors because there was a Herod over Judea, but he was total flake and he had to be removed. And Caponius was the first Roman that was put in there. And then a few guys down, we have Pontius Pilate. Now, that actually fulfills a a, a very unknown or not well-known scripture in Genesis 49.10 that says that the Messiah would come. And it's a time-sensitive prophecy when the scepter would be removed from the Israelites. So the Herods still allowed the Israelites to conduct day-to-day operations. But when Caponius was put in... That set off Genesis 49.10 that very few people are familiar with. So this is really, really deep stuff, okay? Pontius Pilate was known for his brutality. And you see this when Jesus is going to be crucified, Pontius Pilate wavers because he's already in the hot seat for some of the things he has done. It all makes sense, right? Uh, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, Lysanias were known for their corruptions. However, we live in 2022 in the Northeast, so we're familiar familiar with political corruption, right? I mean, we see it on a regular basis. Nothing's changed. Caiaphas was the actual high priest with Annas, his father-in-law, who was sort of the influence, the older influence behind Caiaphas. Now, if you read Jewish sources, you'll find that these things are true as well. So this was a depressing time in religion and politics. And the Romans started to manipulate the high priests because they wanted harmony in the empire. So you see that they actually, if you study history, they pushed for Caiaphas to be in there and not Annas so much. Annas was old school, right? Get him out of there. However, he still has a role. And we see that again in the crucifixion of Christ, where it goes back and forth between these religious leaders. So that's for the prove it to me crowd. The prophet John's ministry was foretold in Isaiah 40, which we covered. When we were in Isaiah a few years back, John comes to the wilderness or he comes out of the wilderness to preach to society. Now, this is so important because, you know, today in our culture, especially today (laughs) with big tech and censorship, you know, when you try to say something that is maybe from the heart, it's genuine, but it doesn't align with society's norms. You could be canceled. You could be, I've seen it. I've known it happened to certain people. Um, And what the tendency is, now this is, folks, I I covered this in Revelation. 
this aggressive globalist movement. Big tech is a big part of it. They have, you know, factories and headquarters in the United States and have no loyalty to this country. We are aggressively being moved to a globalist society, which is setting up the infrastructure for the Antichrist, who is an aggressive global leader, which I believe he's alive today. But the point is that John... God purposely put him out into the wilderness so he wouldn't be corrupted by society, right? In our society today, it is very hard to establish or to tell or to espouse ourselves with biblical truths without being attacked right away. Hair trigger culture, no mercy, no mercy. So John is is purified in this wilderness setting because he's not influenced politically by the establishment. So he comes out and people are blown away by his mannerisms, right? We're going to look at some of that. You know, today I see some pastors and, and they, they bend and it's a trap. They're bending to some of the sociological norms of society today some pastors even are moving towards this aggressive globalist movement. And I'm scratching my head. And I say to myself, have you ever read Revelation? I want to scream, you know, where uh, we have pastors that are bending towards this, this wokeism and this hair, you know, no redemption, no forgiveness. Just jump on somebody as soon as they say something. You know what I'm saying? So this wasn't John. Some of these guys today need to go out into the wilderness and get away from social media and society. Right, because it's it's a corrupting influence. So we have to understand what we're looking at here. You know, John had to prepare hard hearts to receive salvation. It was a lot of work that was that needed to be done. And I gotta tell you folks, if I read this in public or I go to a college campus and read what John said, people will get up and walk out. They'll be highly offended because everyone's triggered today. You know, I can't hear that. It doesn't line up with my pre established well, what if it's the truth? In my mid to late 20s, I was going in my own direction. I wasn't a Christian. If I didn't listen to some of this stuff, I would have never become a Christian. You know, we have to look in the mirror sometimes and say, am I, am I really in truth? And don't give me your truth, my truth. You do that with engineering, the building's going to collapse. Oh, you know, I'm going to build it the way I want. Physics, eh, this is how I feel the building should be built. Plane, well, let me, let me build a plane. You don't follow Bernoulli's principle and, and Newton's principle, that plane's going to crash. So there's still some, some sanity in some um, you know, places and, and uh, professions that truth really means something, and you can't go tweaking truth. I work with electricity. I've worked with it live. I, I kind of feel like the black wire and the white wire, they look so cute together. Let me cross them. <laughs> And I've been zapped a few times because I didn't follow the truth of electricity. So we've got to, listen, I, I, when I deal with people, I'm, I'm as ginger and as tender as possible because I, I, I don't want to argue. I want to win them to my side. So I'm just setting the stage for John, especially when you hear the next few verses. He's preaching or he's uh, engaging in this baptism of repentance. Now, again, if there's a guy on a milk crate or a, a cart in the middle of New York City, with a Bible screaming at everybody that walks by, repent, it sounds like a very scary word. And I don't, that's just not me. I don't do it like that. Uh, but repent means what? It can mean to reverse course. If you study it, repent can mean to change action, to change spiritual direction that starts in the heart. 
So baptism of repentance didn't save, but it prepared the people to receive the message of salvation. And I tell you, I started going to a Calvary chapel. I didn't get saved right away. It took months because I had so much gook and garbage in my heart, negative experiences. I was hard Uh, inside. I was callous. It took a while for the word to start to penetrate me and for me to put down some of my defenses and receive it. And then eventually I received Christ. So like today, John had a difficult job, right? Uh, Baptism of repentance was symbolic. It was a symbolic way to identify with the decision they were going in. You know, we do a lot of skits here, as as you know, if you've been here for a while. Um, Physical illustrations are very powerful because I can yammer, yammer, yammer in monotone to you and you're like, you fall asleep, moving around, doing a skit. You know, there's these physical illustrations that you now connect what you heard with your eyesight and with your multiple senses, you start putting the picture together. So this baptism of repentance wasn't magic. They didn't go into the water and come out sinless. It didn't work like that. It was what we would call today a preparatory rite. Preparatory rite. Now, this was not uncommon because the Jews, when somebody from Greco-Roman culture would say, you know, I'm tired of the Greek and Roman pantheon, this polytheism. You know, you Jews seem to have it, you know, this monotheism, one true God. And they convert to Judaism and they would put them through a, through a baptism. It was a preparatory rite when they converted to Judaism. And there was also a lot of ceremonial baths that took place among the Jewish people. So this was not something unheard of. But John was using it as a physical illustration to represent the heart for repentance. And I'll leave you with one more thing is John was a transitory figure. You know, when I taught the book of Acts, I really had to explain. And and in my mind, as I'm teaching and I'm studying, I'm like, I really got to get this stuff lined up right because Acts is a transitional book, right? Well, why don't we see that, that we saw in Acts? Because it was a transition. The Holy Spirit was given wholesale. He was sealed, right? Even um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila had to get Apollo or Apollos, forget him, but he was a dynamic preacher, but he only had part of the message. They had to bring him up to speed with, you know, salvation through Jesus Christ. So Acts is a very transitional book. John is a transitional figure. John really is bridging the Old Testament prophets with the New Testament prophets. He, He bridges the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. That's why Jesus said among men, he's one of the greatest prophets. What he did was so important. So you got the preparatory right, but you also have the transition, the transitional figure. Because today people say, well, well, why don't we do that today? We should have baptism for repentance. When we went to the full transition of the new covenant or new Testament, what we find is that repenting and believe is really one step. It's one step. I'm going to illustrate that at the end. So for me, I'll, I'll explain to my, uh, you know, about myself sitting in church. I'm hearing the word. I'm hearing the word. One day there's an altar call and I'm like, well, repent and believe, you know, looking in the mirror saying your ways to this point, if not, they were certainly not pleasing God. So I repented a change of direction and I believed in Jesus Christ as my Lord and savior. So it's kind of a one-step process 
where this was more of a two-step that transitioned into a one-step. I don't want to make it too mechanical, but I also want to explain what's going on here, right? So the mountains and the valleys, (laughs) John didn't get a caterpillar and start doing excavation, right? Uh, That's not what he came to do. I'm going to make some mountains and I'm going to shrink them and use that dirt and fill in the low spots and you're going to have a straight road. It's not what John did. This was a This was a metaphoric for what goes on inside of our hearts because can we be stubborn creatures? Sure we can. And I I often say that I I wish I would have gotten saved earlier in life. I would have saved myself some heartache, right? But I was a stubborn person. And there was a lot of mountains and valleys and crooked places that needed to be straightened, right? And the people at the time, like the people today, want to blame everything else for why their hearts are not in the right place. No doubt the people back then would have said the Roman government is the problem. Well, the Roman government was a problem. The corrupt religious system is a problem. Well, that was true too. However, the bigger problem was our own free will inclined towards stubbornness. And it's the same thing today. So the internal is more of an issue than the external, right? So John goes into, he goes in a different direction. And as we start covering the next few verses, it's very powerful. And people might say today, you Christians believe that stuff? Where's the love, man? Because love today is a feeling. When in the scripture, you see love more of an action. It's something that we do, whether we feel like it or not. Love is supposed to carry us through no matter where we are in our hearts. So John, what he was doing was loving, and I'm going to make that case, right? You, you know, some people think, well, if I was to hang out with John in the wilderness, I'd probably be afraid. He, he might say some harsh things to me. I'm sure John was a really great guy, but this was what the Lord called him to do. There were some hard hearts back then. And, you know, today, and again, just going through some of this stuff, When we engage the culture, maybe we don't say to people that we meet for the first time, you brood of vipers, okay? Maybe you kind of put that in the back somewhere. Remember, this was, there was a purpose here, but we, when we need to engage the culture and show people that the culture that we're in, and if I was a preacher in Russia or China or France, I'd be saying the same thing. The culture that we're in is toxic. It's ungodly. It's inclined towards self. If it feels good, do it. So any church in any place has to look at the situation and make some applications and show the culture that the culture is vacuous, right? Even in some of this wokeism, like there's no redeemer, there's no, there's no God, there's no redemption, there's no forgiveness, there's no hope, right? We need to show the culture otherwise, We can't keep going along with the culture and churches are making that mistake and it's causing them to actually become irrelevant. So let's look at verse seven. Here we go. Hold on to your seats. He said, then he said to the multitudes, right? This is John preaching that came out to be baptized by him. Brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Wow. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Judgment's coming eventually. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? So here's you get a response. Maybe not all of them, but a good amount of them said, you know, well, what should I do? Um, I'm hearing what you're saying. It's a little scary. And they're responding. He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to one to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers, this must have been powerful. We can have a very feckless Christianity, a very, well, I don't want to make waves kind of, and honestly, it doesn't do much. But here, even the soldiers who had power and weapons asked him saying, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, so now they're saying to themselves, wow, we've never heard anybody preach like this. I wonder if this is the Christ that the Bible foretold. What does John do? He answered, verse 16, saying to them, well, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. And with many exhortations, he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him. So he goes a step further. Now he's, he's going after the Herods, who are a very powerful family, politically entrenched in the Roman system. And... John, like, has no boundaries here, which is awesome. You know, I, you know I, I've seen preachers who, maybe famous preachers, who rubbed elbows with too many kings and politicians, and their preaching got soft. They wanted to be friends with everybody. And I think that hurt their ministry, you know. Um, again, you don't have to be rude. You don't have to be caustic. But at the same time, you can't just shake your head to everything that you say. see happening. You have to take a stand. People want to see what you're made of. And if you don't believe this, then they're not going to believe this. They're going to be like, well, the pastor doesn't even believe it, so why should I bother? No one's going to get saved. Well, let me back strike that. God can save whoever he wants. In Revelation, the church is gone, and an angel is preaching the gospel, and 144,000 Jewish people sealed with the mark, um, with God's seal versus the mark of the beast, they're going and evangelizing as well. So it's very powerful. But the point is, do we want our ministry to be effective or not? But Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. So John had a, how long was his ministry? I don't know. Weeks, months, don't know. But eventually... He ticks off the wrong person who has power and doesn't say, oh, what should I do? He's like, just get rid of this guy, put him in prison. We're going to talk about that as well. So two out of three is breaking the ice. And there were a lot of icy hearts as there's a lot of icy hearts today. In verse seven, John says, you brood of vipers. And if you read the rest of the scripture, the parallel gospels, what you understand is that when he says specifically, you brood of vipers, He's actually talking about the religious dudes who are coming by and they're starting to listen, right? Wondering, is this guy really a prophet? Um, you know, they're going to scrutinize him. And he calls them a brood of vipers. There's a book that I don't think John read. It actually is called, quote, 
how to win friends and influence people, end quote. So I don't think John read that book. Um, he just had his own way of doing things. It'd be interesting to see John writing a book. <laughs> so, so in a society, right, where today people are triggered by everything, this could be offensive. But as Pastor Vinny often says, you got to shake people to wake people. Amen. Verse 8. So here's John is speaking to his own people, the Jews, and he's telling them to stop relying on tradition. Oh, we're sons of Abraham. Great. It's a bloodline. God doesn't save us based on bloodlines. Right? People do that today. It's very strange. Even in ethnicity that people will cling to as if one ethnicity is better than the other. We're all equal in the eyes of God. So it's not ethnicity that saves us. It's not denomination. It's not tradition. It's not religion. It's not who your parents are. John is trying to get them to open their eyes and say, for them to say, well, what is it? And then Christ comes in. And we're going to see that next Sunday. I believe that if John was around today, he would speak to a lot of religious leaders and rebuke them. I have no doubt he would rebuke the Pope. I have no doubt he would rebuke some people in our own movement who are going aggressive globalism. What are you doing? Right? People need to read their Bibles. Today, some uh, in ministry become celebrities, politicians, or whatever. See, here's the thing. Religion, even the Christian culture, which is not all Christian, without the Holy Spirit and without Christ-centeredness, it looks like the world. And it has a tendency towards corruption without the Holy Spirit and without Christ-centeredness. I don't care where it is. So verse 9, I am channeling John the Baptist today, just so you know. This morning I'm channeling, no, I'm just kidding. He's supposed to laugh at that. (laughs) But, you know, you got to be, what what am I going to do? Read this and soften it? Oh, you know, he didn't really mean that. Please don't be offended. Please come back to church next Sunday. It's not how it works. This was necessary, right? I can't get into that stuff that they're doing today. Verse 9, he says, the axe is laid at the root, which is a metaphor for hell. To cut the tree down, right? And again, some find this harsh, but do we want to placate people and make them feel comfortable all the way to judgment? There's a woman that I know who's a very strong Christian woman, has a very accomplished, very strong personality, and she said, I was witness to for years, and I just wasn't buying it. I felt I was fine, she said, until my friend now started to turn up the heat and started talking about hell. And you know what? This woman is a genuine, solid Christian. But she needed to be shaken to be wakened because she was just, I'm fine. I don't need to hear this. I don't need to trust in Jesus. I'm a good person. I didn't kill anybody. And then she started researching it and she realized, you know what? I'm not in a good place. Um, So sometimes the person has to be shocked out of their complacency or their hard-heartedness. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. What does that mean? So we see this a lot with, uh, and then Jesus starts to speak about fruit, right? Just like when you, if you have a tree, I have some trees, um, some fruit trees, and some fruit looks pretty awful, you know, is something went wrong in the branches and it just looks terrible. And then there's other things on the property where they're absolutely gorgeous. They're healthy, they're mature. Uh, and the fruit is a result of the rest of the tree. Amen. So when we talk about fruit and bearing good fruit, this has to do with 
belief and behavior that have to go together, behavior and lifestyle. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't sin. That's not true. But there's a change. So I can look back 20-something years at my former life and say, and I do sometimes, and I get a memory, and I'm thinking, man, that guy was crazy. I'm talking about myself, right? I am a totally different person. Now, it doesn't mean I don't still have to work on some things, but... You know, I'm still, I still have to repent to the Lord. I do things wrong, but I'm a different person. So things started to change. And that is one of the things that unbelievers want to see in us. They want to see, are we hypocrites where we say a lot and we don't do, right? Bearing fruits of repentance means that you, your, your do is very important because it reinforces your say. Okay? Amen. We've all seen it. We've all experienced it. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And we know that behavior does follow belief. So John is doing an amazing job. Verse 10 through 11. Now, again, I've seen this today. I've heard ministries. I've heard preachers. I've heard guys call themselves a mini Messiah. Oh, that would never come out of my mouth. I've heard people... Refer, and usually it's a cult, you know, they get a, a large following and it goes to their head and they think that, and how many of these cults ended up in disaster where the leader, sometimes it's mostly men, sometimes it's a woman, um, they put themselves up as they're like, they were the sacred ones that, I mean, there's a self delusion there. That's, that's nuts. John doesn't hesitate. Oh, are you the one? Now, could you imagine how that must've felt? Oh, I got, look at this following. I've been in the wilderness. I haven't seen a soul in, in years or months. And all these people now are flocking to me, right? It does something to the ego. So some, to the, something goes on in the, in the processes. But John would not allow it. He would not allow it, right? But what he was basically saying, um, or what they were basically asking in these verses, in addition to asking him if he was the Messiah, was what should we do? people do that today. I've had people come to receive Christ or consider receiving Christ and they take me aside and like, so what, what does being a Christian look like? Like, what if, what if I do, you know, I'm leaning towards it. Um, how does my life change? You know, what, what's expected of me? And all, I had those questions too, all valid questions. Now, sharing clothing or feeding others, it doesn't save you, but it was a start. Society had become very cold, every man for himself. So this was sort of an action that would bring your thought processes to a place where it would be easier when Jesus came to receive him because you're already doing the action, right? Remember, it's a transitional period. James 2 tells us that if we see somebody who's uh, hungry and destitute of clothing and we have the ability to help and we don't, what good is your faith? Where you say, oh, be warm and well-fed and you just keep walking. Oh, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. But is there any feed on that? Are there any actions to that? Verse 12 and 13, tax collectors were a symbol of corrupt, powerful government. Right? Again, we watch enough of the news and see some of these reports. Uh, what's changed in 2,000 years? This is mankind. A man or woman, they get to the top of the food chain. They get some power and they become, it goes to their head. And their judgment is off. And all of a sudden they become wealthy after 10, 20 years 
in public office, right? Nothing, no different back then. It was acceptable back then to take your money for Rome and then take a little extra for yourself. This was something that, so tax collectors were looked at disdainfully. But some of them, praise God, had the wherewithal and the humility to say, well, what shall we do? I'm sure they knew what the answer was coming, but they asked anyway. And he, he shows that anybody can be saved, right? Be fair with people. Don't do that. Some of these people are barely scraping by. And the beautiful thing is the truth is that nobody is outside the possibility of salvation. I've seen testimonies from, I've seen testimonies of politicians who got caught by the feds and ended up in prison and actually got saved. And if it, and they'll say, if it wasn't for what happened to me, I don't know that I ever would have turned to Christ because I was in my delusion in, in office, mayors or senators or Congress, you know, and you, you read some of these reports and you're like, wow, that guy went wacky. What happened? Got a little taste of power, a little taste of money. But I've seen uh, mobsters, testimonies of organized criminals who uh, got saved. So nobody is outside of the possibility of getting saved. And John makes that clear. Verse 14, the soldiers. Now, understand that today we have in America, we have soldiers that protect our borders, that protect us against foreign invaders, right? The country. And we have police forces. We have, you know, federal, uh, state, local, county. So that's kind of the structure here. So I'm going to put in, for today's application, they were soldiers. They were also the police at the time. And he basically said, if you're in a position of power, don't abuse it. Now, today, that goes for judges. That goes for cops. That goes for CEOs. That goes for people in power who have authority over others and they have control over their lives. One little decision can ruin your, your constituents' lives depending on what that decision is, right? We're seeing stuff today about cruel people in, in government or, um, you know, sometimes the videos of, of police officers. And again, I've worked in two uh, good-sized police departments and uh, 99-point-something percent of them are awesome people. But in every profession, you get the problem ones who shouldn't be there. And then, of course, a video pops up, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to talk to you and just say this because this one kind of hit me and in my formative years as a Christian because I was a police officer. I served for 25 years. And it's so funny because, and it, it was a good, as a young man, I go into this profession and I'm like, I want to clean up crime. I'm tired of watching stuff on TV where people are victimized. My heart was in the right place. I wasn't safe, but again, good, good place to be. Get the bad guys. And I was fearless when it came to sending me into a dangerous situation. I, I think part of it, I like the adrenaline. Uh, but um, when I got saved, God changed my thought processes. And I thought, now I started to think, let me talk to people, right? A lot of times as I got older, I would have a young man or a young woman come into the station. And I would find out they didn't have good parent parental figures and and i'm sitting and i'm almost like counseling them you know like so i thought to myself you know what could really stop crime me going out like i'm gonna save the world here right idealistic and do all these things or and i tell you what i i dealt with murder i dealt with you know a lot of heavy stuff it was a pretty wild career but what i realized was that that if you can help people to find God, and I got in trouble a few times, 
and I'm I'm retired now, so I can talk about these things freely, (laughs) Um, and to change their heart and bring. And I've seen this, and they become now towards towards God. They become a believer. Well, they're not going to do the things that they kept doing. And this is a a stat. I have some people in in my law enforcement here. The stat is that it's a small percentage of the population that the cops have to keep dealing with. And if that person's heart can change, it's less of a headache to the police department, uh, but it's also less of a headache to society. So this is the way my mind, I started telling people about Jesus. I started giving out Bibles. I would... Get, go get my meals and feed my prisoners, you know, and, and, uh, so I'll tell you one quick story. So I, I go to this gym by my house and I see this young man and he's pretty jacked and he's all tatted up and he did some time. He kept getting in trouble and trouble and we would deal with him on a regular basis. And I'm, I'm thinking, all right, let me go say hello. The worst thing that could happen is he punches me or tries to tackle me to the ground. So I see him and he recognizes me. He, and he gives me a hug. And he's like, he, I say, you know, I'm a pastor now. And he's telling me about how he turned his life around. So when he goes to hug me, I'm thinking, all right, he's not trying to choke me. This is a good thing. Uh, but I feel that in my career, especially when I was a Christian, I did make a difference. Right? So I, this part of the scripture really affected me. Right? And I, I got some federal guys here. I got some uh, sergeants here. I've got... You, you know, you know what it's like when you are a believer. You know, listen. You got you go to the hot call. Somebody's got a weapon. You have to do your job. You got to go home at the end of the shift. But so many conversations I've had with people in the cell, and my supervisor's like, "Are you done processing him yet?" You know, or my one one sergeant goes, "I saw you on the camera. You passed the Bible through the through the bars," and I just did it anyway. And I'm retired, and they can't touch me now. So. Um, but I tell you what, I, I, as a retired person, I, I meet these people and I feel so good about what I did. G- Jesus Christ changed me, right? And then he helped me to change others. And I'm just a humble servant. So good stuff. I could spend all day on that verse. <laughs> it really, when I read that it, as a young man, it just... It pierced me. Verse 15, last few verses. Okay, it says, Now as the people were in expectation, uh, yes, now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and he and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all that he shut John up in prison. So I just wanted to go through that again. Three out of three, the last section is John's ultimate purpose. And I'm going to say in life, this might not have taken that long. It could have been a few months, but this was his ultimate purpose in life. And we're going to see later Jesus talk about John from a heavenly perspective, what God thinks about what John did. You know, sometimes we, we look at our life and we think, um, are, are we really making a difference in the world? And you just do a bunch of small things. But you know what? God sees that. 
He doesn't call us all to start, uh, and I'd love to start a, a soup kitchen. You know, it takes capital and, you know, buildings. And uh, it's great for those that do do that. We need those things. And then we can look at that or some of these big internet Christian ministries and think, what could I do? You saw the picture, right, in the, in the introduction with, the, with, the, with Irene and the children's ministry and all those five kids having a great time. To, to those little kids coming to church, they love to see her and, and all of the people that serve. So, oh, it's, it's small. No, it's not small. What, what are these children going to grow up to be, right? All right? Sometimes a kid can come in here and maybe uh, they come from a broken home and they start to adapt to this family and see, you know, love that they're experiencing. So you can't look at things as big or small because that's not the way God looks at it. So John, he could have overstated his position, but he basically says something that is a little odd. I'm not worthy to whether to put on his sandal or take it off. In those days they had servants, and the servant's job when the their overlord would come in, they would take their shoes off, maybe wash their feet. And when they left the house, they would help them to put on their tunic and put their sandals back on. Um, John says, I'm not even worthy to be Christ's servant. I don't even belong in this position. That's powerful, right? I mean, I love to serve the Lord, but we can never get to a place where people think we're on equal footing with the Lord. That's crazy. I'm always going to be, you know, over here. And then we're all going to be over here, right? So John is putting everything in perspective. He doesn't let anybody pump him up and pump his ego up. Uh, The Bible talks about flattery, especially in Proverbs, how destructive flattery could be when people start to, you know, really suck it in. So verse 16 through 17. Now, this is this whole thing about the winnowing fan and the threshing floor. So let me tell you what what the threshing floor was, and then I'll go into the spiritual application. So basically, uh, they would build these structures, and they were like kind of open-air structures, but they had a roof, and they would build them in places on the property where there would be a wind that would blow. And when they would harvest the grain, and I've, I've seen grain, you know, my my wife's a master gardener, so I've seen all kinds of edibles and grains and things you can grow. They would gather it up and they would put it on this threshing floor. And part of what they would do is they would, they would beat it a little bit to separate the unusable part of the grain from the usable, right? The wheat from the chaff. And then when there was a good wind, they would take this, this fan-like structure and they would throw it up in the air. And as the wind came in, the chaff was lighter, so it would blow it out. And then what would fall down was the usable part of the grain. Remember, in these days, in the first century, a lot of people didn't have an education. That's why you see the Bible filled with metaphors and parables. Because even if you didn't have an education, you couldn't read. You could, something could be explained to you that you could be like, oh, I totally get that. Right? So, a few things. Yes, Jesus is the way. And if you are on the way, if you follow Christ, you're going to be in everlasting life and eternity with God. And everyone can go there, everyone on the planet. Uh, however, he does have that power to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats in the end, the real Christians from the fake Christians, right? And the ones that have been, that have really trusted in Christ as their savior, they're going to go and be with the Lord. The other ones are not. 
But it also can mean, and this is what I love too, is I see this with new, new believers, and I saw this with myself. I thought, and I would, my pastor was so, he's, he's still awesome. He preaches, he's great. Um, and I would just like, all right, what do I have to do? You know, what, like I'm looking for a set of rules because rule, rule books and stuff I was used to. And a lot of times he said, you know what, just let the Holy Spirit work these things out in your life. So part of that chaff blowing away is over time in your walk, you, first of all, you're never going to be perfect, but you're, you're going to always try to move closer to really representing Christ well. And, you know, when the, when the wind comes, like the wind of the Holy Spirit, it blows that chaff away. So we can look back every five, ten years at ourselves and say, you know what, I am a different person. Wow, God blew that chaff away. I don't think that chaff would ever leave. So great metaphor that he uses here. Verses 19 through 20. It's the last part. It's kind of sad is that John's ministry lasted for a time until he keeps talking about Herod, who's this leader, right? Herod Antipas. He has an adulterous relationship, strangely, with a biological family member. He's just a weird dude, right? So, so John was speaking about that openly because he was talking about every other profession. And, of course, you can imagine Herod Antipas didn't repent, didn't like what he was saying, so he goes to put him in prison. Josephus, one of the uh, famous historians at the time, said this, Herod Antipas did this because John was gaining traction with his preaching, and Herod feared an uprising against him, right? I think of politicians today where they're ju- they have such a, a fragile ego, you know, you're a mayor, you're a governor, a president, whatever, and the people are not happy with you, and they're expressing displeasure, right? And they can either say, you know what, I'm here to serve the people. That's a good politician. Maybe I should change my ways. And some do, but a lot of them get irritated. They get aggravated. They get bothered as if they're aristocracy, and they punish the people. And we've seen that too. We've seen a lot of that over the last few years. So... Unfortunately for Herod, instead of being humble and going to John and saying, all right, well, like, what, is, what does this look like for the next few months with me? What do, I, what do I have to do? He didn't want to deal with it. And we, can, we don't have to be people in power. We don't have to be politicians. But you ever meet people who are just a common person, but they have such a fragile ego that you can't tell them anything. They fly off the handle, right? And that's sad because if you die in that state, it's going to be a disaster, so all the other people were asking, including the soldiers, what, what can we do to change this? And not Herod. He ends up putting John in prison. We'll see what happens to him in the next few chapters. So listen, at the end of the day, John's ultimate purpose in life should be what? Our ultimate purpose in life. To see as many people saved as possible. To uh, ask God, what can I do? And to use our spiritual gifts, which we all have if we're believers, to affect that change. Right? Even if sometimes, and I don't enjoy doing it, I've got to be honest with you. Some people say, oh, Pastor Joe, you're, you're brave. Some things I sweat when I preach, but I have to preach it. You know what I'm saying? I want to just get along with everybody, but that's my flesh, and I can't let that dominate me. So sometimes we have to lovingly share hard truths. Ultimately, the way to be saved is through Jesus Christ, not John. John knew that. He had a role that was preparatory and it was transitional. Only Jesus can save Today, what's changed is there's some measure of repentance 
right? Because we're not perfect when we get saved. That goes hand in hand with belief in Christ. So if I can, so if I can almost do an illustration, if that, that's Christ and that's the world and we are, and I speak for myself, we're constantly, our back is towards Christ. No concern, even if it's maybe just lip service. You're going towards the world, the world. And, you know, whether you're preached to, whether the Holy Spirit convicts you, whether you hear a sermon, you read the Bible on your own, you realize that you have to change direction and you change towards the Lord. And now you start moving in his directions, even if they're baby steps. Amen. So in John's day, he had the, the tough portion of kind of breaking things down with the repentance through the icy hearts. And then Jesus came today. It's a one-step process, as you see. So there's the difference. The sermon is titled Clearing a Rough Path. Don't miss that. Jesus spoke about the narrow path that leads to everlasting life. He said not a lot of people find that path because a lot have the mountains and valleys and the crooked places. The way, the path, the way, the way is Jesus Christ. And sometimes to get there, not God doesn't put any impediments It's often fraught with rough roads, high mountains, low valleys, filled with self-what-ifs worldliness that we build up for ourselves that has to be smooth and crossed. So my question to you this morning, where are you on that path towards salvation? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.